rabbis many years ago had very similar problems to what they have nowadays. Namely, they give a shear or a sermon, and the people start dozing off and nodding off in the middle of the shear. It was a common enough problem. Rabbi Akiva, the great Rabbi Akiva, even had the problem, so that's why I don't feel bad if you guys fall asleep. Are you warning us about this? Uh... <laughs> no, but uh, it was in the beginning of the shear. If you look in the upper left, the Nether Shrav in this week's Pasha brings down the following episode. Rabbi Akiva Rabbi Akiva was there sitting and darshaning, saying a shir. And the people were dozing. They were falling asleep on him. So he wanted to perk them up a little bit and wake them up. So how do you wake people up? Usually you say a, a joke, a story, a riddle. I suppose the senses of humor may have changed over the years, but this is what he said at least. Omar, he said to the people the following question or riddle, or I don't know if you consider it. Ma ro'aso Esther shetimloich al sheva ve'esmu me'am Medina. We know that Achashverosh was the um, emperor, the king of 127 provinces. That's what it says in, in, in the Megillus Esther. The entire known world. 127 provinces. It's rather odd to find a number like that mentioned twice in the Torah. Or Bikiva pointed out that there's another place where we find the exact same number used in the Torah. He says, what did Esther see that she was able to become queen of 127 provinces? Ella, Tova Esther, Shehoisa Bas Bita Shal let Esther, the granddaughter of Sarah, Shehoisa Kuf Bukhov the Zion, who lived 127 years, the Timlech Al Kuf Bukhov the Zion Medinos, and let her therefore rule over 127 provinces. Okay, again, maybe the senses of humor have changed because I didn't notice anybody here laughing. But, um, so you get it? You get the joke? No, you don't get it. Ah, Harry got it. He's laughing. I know. So maybe it wasn't a joke. The truth is, if it's recorded in the Medrash, there must be some sort of a, a message to it. The truth is, many Mephoshim point out that this is also the only place in the Torah that a woman's age is given. I guess it's been protected even in those days. Nobody, you know, women don't give away their ages very easily. But it's the only place in the Torah where a woman's life age was actually given upon her death. You don't find anywhere in the Torah by any of the matriarchs or Tzedkonios or, or Nevi'im or Nevi'os rather that it says anywhere how old they were upon death question as to why but it's also interesting that the sedra that talks about Sarah's death is not called Sarah's death but Sarah's life and they were the, the life of Sarah or the lives or the living days the living parts of Sarah's life was or were 100 years 20 years Sheva Shonim, seven years. Shnei Chaye Sora, 
the years of the life of Sarah. It's right away readily apparent to everybody the problems with the first Pasuk that it seems to be laying great emphasis on Shana, 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 Chaye Sarah. It says it again, it starts off. It was the life of Sarah, 127 years were the years of the life of Sarah. Again, it's emphasized in the beginning of the Pasuk as well as at the end of the Pasuk. It's mentioned again twice. In fact, the word Chaye Sarah in the first Pasuk is mentioned twice. It's mentioned in the beginning of the Pasuk Chaye Sarah. It's mentioned at the end of the Pasuk Chaye Sarah. So Rashi says, Rashi says that we're going to skip the first Rashi. There's a remez in the 100 years to the 20 years to the 7 years. There's a beautiful shot because Eddie asked Akasha the other day. Rashi brings down the Chazal that say at 100 she was as innocent and blameless and sinless as at 20 and she was as beautiful as at age 7. One would think it's the other way around that, that if you want to talk about purity and innocence you talk about a 7 year old child. If you want to talk about beauty you talk about a 20 year old child. But um, I, you know what I'll briefly tell you what very briefly a quick terrace another kasha at age 20 we the principle of 20 being without sin only applies to sins and punishment from heaven there's nothing to do with your sins aren't sins your sins are counted as sins from age 12 or age 13 and Besson will even kill a a bar mitzvah boy if he's guilty of something an infraction that deserves the death penalty a 14 year old murderer is put to death it's only in terms of heavenly courts that you have this added dispensation to age 20. So if you want to talk about blamelessness, age 7 makes much more sense. So I saw one pshat that Chazal teach us. You know that Sarah, of course, was very beautiful. And um, in fact, Chazal actually say that Sarah was one of the most beautiful women in all of existence. How do we know that? Her name... Is besides the fact of all the stories of power that as soon as she came down to Egypt, you know, they were all so overwhelmed with her beauty that they just had to take her to Paro, Avimelech likewise. And Avram knew that that was coming. He knew that she was a very beautiful woman. Chazal said she was one of the four most beautiful women in creation. And they even used an expression that all other women compared to Sarah's beauty was, was like a monkey. It's like a monkey. So, um, in fact, I don't know if who remembers, but way, way back at the end of Pasha's Noah, if you recall, we have a postic over there that refers to the to Nochar and Avram's marriage, and over there Sarah has another name, and that name is Yiska. Yiska, from the word Socha, which means to, to gaze, to look. So Rashi says, why is she called Yiska? Sarah was called Yiska because she had perceptive abilities. She was able to perceive beyond what most people can. She had Ruach HaKodesh, she had Nevoah, she was a prophetess. And another Peshat is that everybody looked at her. So everybody called her Looker. You know, everybody was always looking at her, gazing at her. So they called her a Looker. Yiska. With an L, Looker. So they called her, right? Shakos Sochen Biyofya. So one shot was that comes from the word Socha, which means she perceived, she had Ruach Kodesh. The other shot is Socha, that everybody looked at her because of her beauty. And then there's another shot 
which tells us that it comes from from being like a kind of a ruler, like the word Sarah implies, and therefore the word Sarah Sarah comes from the word Sar, a prince. So Sarah is a princess or a ruler, queen. You know, it's interesting. The two Pshatim, she had Ruach Hakodesh, and everybody looked at her because of her beauty. One would think that that's really holds apart. The idea of referring to her as Yiska because she has perceptive abilities. That's one thing. That's a spiritual quality. The other one is that she's so beautiful that everybody's looking at her. Rather, it's from a, one extreme, from one pole to the other. So, what? Where we find it? Hakadosh Baruch Hu tells. Yeah, Hakadosh Baruch Hu tells tells Avram. Listen to everything that sorry your wife says because she knows better. Chazal say that Avram was even on a lower level of prophecy than her. She was one of the main prophetesses in Jewish history. In any case, that's not relevant for now. Maybe because of Ishmael, whatever. Okay, okay. You find it no place. They affect very extraordinary. No place. No place. No, she's really the one that set. What you find throughout, what you find throughout Bereshis is that the women of Bereshis were really in charge of perpetuating new generations. Even from Chava, Aim Kol Chai. But Sora is the one that Avram didn't quite have it as to how the future was going to be. Sora is the one that, first of all, initiated Hagar and Yishmol. Then she saw that that's not the way it's going to be and get rid of Yishmoel, Kibayitzim Kikor Lechazar, Rivka likewise. Rivka likewise didn't quite, uh, Yitzchak didn't have Arois Klor, Esau and Yaakov, and it was Rivka that did it. So we find that, that their uniqueness wasn't the, wasn't the perpetuation of Klal Yisrael. But in any case, so, this 120 and 7, the truth is when we talk about innocence, true innocence is not a child. A child's innocence at age seven is not really innocence. Because to imply innocence, you have to, you have to imply a corresponding possibility of guilt. You're innocent rather than being guilty. But to go refer to a, uh, an innocent frog or an innocent dog, a child is innocent by nature because there's no guilt there. If a person could be so beautiful and retain their childlike innocence at age 20, now we know Sarah was one of the most beautiful of women. That means that at age 100, she was the same sinlessness as she was at age 20. At age 20, she carried with her her child, in other words, rather than take advantage of of her beauty, which is what most women do. I mean, a woman that develops a very beautiful woman at age 20 no longer feels like a seven-year-old child. The point is, Sarah did not utilize her beauty of Yiska to be enticing other people. She was 20 and everybody was looking at her and everyone was gazing at her. How did that affect her? At age 20, she still had the beauty of a seven-year-old. Now that's true innocence. If at a 20-year-old she thinks of herself with all of her beauty, as Eddie was talking right, her beauty is more pronounced at age 20 than at age 7. But if at age 20 she retains 
in her own mind her seven-year-old childlike quality of innocence, then she is truly innocent and blameless. And then already it's a praise to say, at a hundred, she still had that, she went through an entire life of people deceiving her, people forcibly taking her. She went through so much and she was still the same innocent person as she was at age 20. To say the same innocent person as when you're seven. A seven-year-old is truly innocent in the sense that doesn't know anything. That's immaturity. A seven-year-old isn't innocent, isn't blameless, isn't sinless. A seven-year-old is immature, doesn't know from anything. She knew of things. She was at age 100, she went through a life of deprivation and problems and changes that really, you know, would shake up a normal person. She left her homeland, she went to Choron, from Choron she went to Canaan, she was faced with famine, she was then in Egypt, she was not only faced with deprivation and poverty, she was taken away by Paro, she was returned, now she had wealth, Avram became wealthy, she became the queen, she brought in Hagar, her, her um, I guess you could say kind of a competitor, she, the problem with Yitzhak and Yishmael, she was barren for many years, finally she had children, throughout all these things, throughout all these situations, she maintained her, the same innocence, through thick and thin. That means that at age 100, she was still the same way she was at age 20. What was she like at age 20? At age 20, she was a person who, although was radiantly beautiful, she thought of herself like the seven-year-old. She had the purity of a child. Now that's already a praise to say about someone. To say that after going through life, at age 100, she still retained her the same degree of blamelessness and sinlessness as at age 20. But what was she at age 20? What was she at age 20? At age 20, she was this raving beauty that still had the beauty of a seven-year-old. So you want to talk about the beauty of a seven-year-old, not the blamelessness of a seven-year-old, because a seven-year-old's blamelessness comes from immaturity. So you don't want to say that her mental and emotional state and spiritual state was like a seven-year-old. So it makes much more sense the way Chazal said. At age 100, she was the same sinless person as at age 7. At age 7, she was immature. She wasn't sinless. She was just a child. She was immature. She was at age 100 the same innocence and purity as when she was 20. Not as a normal 20-year-old. A normal 20-year-old isn't so innocent. As when she was 20. How do we define her innocence at age 20, we define it by saying that although she was a raving beauty at age 20, she still carried herself the way she was at age 7. In fact, now, we could then appreciate that the two expressions referring to Sarah of Yiska aren't contradictory and extremes poles apart, but one dovetails with the other, which is Yiska that she had, Ruach HaKodesh, and Yiska that everybody was looking at her. We said them. But the two compliments that are poles apart. The fact that she at Yiska at age 20 was a raving beauty and everybody was looking at her. And to her, how did it affect her? Didn't phase her. She was like a seven-year-old child. She didn't know from these things. She didn't care from these things. She was only concerned with spirituality, not the physical. At age 20, her thoughts weren't like the equivalent 20-year-old who'd now be a model. A 20-year-old that has that kind of beauty isn't walking around like a seven-year-old anymore. 
doesn't think of herself as a seven-year-old beauty. At age 20, if you're that beautiful, you're taking advantage of it. Yiskar. Everybody's gazing at you. Everybody's looking at you. So what do you do? You become a model. You go into the modeling agency. The whole world's looking at you. Make money off of it. Take advantage of your looks. At age 20, she was not concerned with that. To her, her beauty was seven. So what was she concerned with? Yiskar. To look, to have perception. To look at Ruach HaKodesh, at Nebuah. That's the praise. In fact, it strengthens the praise. If at age 20, or whenever, she was called Yisko, everybody's looking at her, and she's not looking back, she's looking for Ruach HaKodesh, that's a praise to say about such a person. In fact, the beauty then makes it a greater challenge and a greater test, and therefore a, a greater uh, quality and virtue that she's able to still be the Ruach HaKodesh. In fact, the third word, the third explanation of Yisko now comes in even greater. What's the third shot that Rashi says? Yiska, she's Sora. What does it mean, Sora? She's a princess. She rules over herself. When she's faced with these qualities and with these challenges and trials and everything else and tribulations, she rules over herself. She doesn't think about beauty. She thinks about spirituality. She rules over herself. And then already you could say that at age 100, she was the same as at age 20. She begins life at age 20 with this control, with this self-control and this radiant beauty, yet this yearning for spirituality and she goes through a life of the next hundred years of trial and tribulation and she still rules over herself to the degree that at age 127 she's not faith, she's not moved an iota, she's like when she was 20, the same blamelessness and the same strength of character. So when you think about it upon reflection, age 20 is when you want to refer to her blamelessness, not at age 7. Age 7 doesn't tell us anything about her. Age 20 tells us a lot about her. She's Yiska, but at age 127, she's just as beautiful and just as unfazed. She rules over herself. She's a Sora. She's a princess. She's a queen. And therefore, by being such a queen, you could say at age 100, she's like age 20, with Yiska. In fact, it fits into another pshat of the Gain. The, 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 the poem that we sing Friday night, Eishas Chayel. Right, tonight we say Eishas Chayel. Was, Chazal tell us, composed by Avram Avinu at the Hespit of Sora. This was given in Sora's eulogy. I told you pshat, Dorshot Semerufishtim. Remember? Dorshot Semerufishtim. She darshaned the... She darshaned the inner meaning of Temer and Fishtim, the laws of Shatnas. Linen and wool. How do you darshan Temer and Fishtim? Shatnas. Kain brought Pishtim as a carbon. Linen. Hevel brought a sheep, Temer. Kain and Hevel can't mix. Just as Kain and Hevel can't miss, she darshaned that idea. Darshan Temer and Fishtim. She darshaned it. And she applied it where? Ishmael and Yitzhak can't mix. Avram did not understand that. Avram made Kalim. Avram made Shatnas. He said, what's so terrible, Ishmael? Avram, Ishmael and Yitzhak. That's Temer and Pishtim. That's Shatnas. That's Kain and Hevel. Kain and Hevel aren't going to get along. Ishmael and Yitzhak can't get along. you got to drive them away because, in fact, it's interesting, the idea of driving away Ishmael was like Kain had Nov and Nov. He was also driven away by God. Novinod, she darshaned She darshaned Semer and Pishin that sometimes two things are too explosive as chemicals and they'll explode. You know, you put nitrogen together with glycerin. Well, not exactly. But it sounds good. 
But um, two things you put together, it explodes. So you take Temer and Pishtim, doesn't go. Kain and Hevel doesn't go. Ishmael and Yitzhak doesn't go. Something which she realized Avram did. So Avram composes in her praise. How does Eishas Chayil end off? Interesting. Sheker Achein, Hevel Hayofi, Isha Yiras Hashem Hitis Beauty is is Hevel. It's beautiful. Sheker Achein, Chein. It's nothing. It's false. Isha Yiras Hashem Hitis A God-fearing woman. She's the one to be praised. How could that be? The Torah praises. The Torah praises them for that. Why would you say Isha Yiras Hashem Hitisalo? Only praise a woman who's God fearing. As if to imply the other ones don't praise for their beauty. The Torah praises Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, Leah, Esther, every single one is praised for her beauty. Says the guy. Chain? That's false. It misleads you. Beauty is nothing, it's hevel. Beauty is only skin deep. Isha Yiras Hashem, but if you have a God-fearing woman, then he tishalol. Then you could praise her for her beauty. Because if you only have this superficial quality, which is skin deep, then there's nothing to praise. It's, it, it fools you. It misleads you. The Pasuk says, um, it's Pasuk in Mishlei, Isha Yofa Pesara Tam, in other words, a woman who who lacks inner qualities and only has beauty. She misuses her beauty and it's, it's one of the most terrible things. So that's what the Pasuk is saying. Chain, it misleads you because all you, you can't go beyond the superficiality. Skin deep. Sheker Achein. Hevel Ayofi. It's Hevel because it, it narrows you up. It fools you. Chain and Hevel. But Chain is charm. Yofi is Hevel. On the other hand, Isha Yiras Hashem, if she has inner qualities, then if it meshes and blends and merges with her outer beauty, then you could praise her for everything. Then you could praise her because she's a she's a God-fearing woman, then her beauty is, is, is really truly remarkable. Something worth praising. It's worth remarking upon. He Tishalel says the guy goes back on the Chain and on the Yofi. Sheker Chain, the Hebel Yofi. Isha Yiras Hashem, if she's God-fearing, then He Tishalel. Praise her for the Chain and the Yofi as well. With what we've said, we can understand it even better. Sarah's beauty was such that it presented her with a challenge. She was Yiska. Nevertheless, what did she do with her Yiska? She ruled over herself. The second shot in Yiska, or the third shot, three shot in Yiska. Everyone's looking at her. She's looking to Shemayim, and she rules over herself. In other words, the quality of self-control of Yiras Hashem was such that it blended her external and internal features and therefore she was truly called Yiska. Yiska was the appropriate name for her. It was the right name because Yiska means everyone's looking at her but she's like a seven-year-old inner child. That's what she sees in her beauty. And she's looking for spiritual qualities. She's Yiras Hashem Hitesalo and she's because of her Yiras Hashem She's a Sarah. She rules over herself. That's where she gets the that's where she gets the Ruach Hakodesh. Isha Yiras Hashem. Heat is hollow. Then praise her for everything. And Taka the Torah does. It calls her Yiska. It praises her all together. So in that one name, you have that Pasik of the Aishas Chayel. Shekar Achein Bevel Yofi. Isha Yiras Hashem. Heat is hollow. That's the Goyin's Pshat. So you can understand the Goyin's Pshat in the one word of Yiska. Because we're praising her for all of these qualities together. 
So those are the two pshatim on, on the idea of her 100 to 20 to 7. Either it's a halachic pshat, or even conceptually the idea makes more sense this way. But let's now take a look at the next Rashi. Shnei chaye sara. What's bothering Rashi is why you repeat it. Vayiyu chaye sara. So what's bothering Rashi is the repetition of saying chaye sara. Vayiyu chaye sara. And then you say Shnei chaye sara. Why are you saying the word chaye sara twice? It says Rashi, Kulon shovin letova. All of her years were equally good. Well, we can understand already what we've introduced. The idea that they're all equally good. 127. The point is that from age 20 to age 100, she went through a lot. It was all the same. She was still Sarah. She was still the Zelda Sarah. The same Sarah. Unchanged, unfazed. If you recall, was it last week, two weeks ago, we said a similar idea with Avram Avinu. Vayelech Lamasov. Avram returned from Egypt wealthy, but in the exact same hotels. He made the same stops. He stopped at Motel 6, Tambo, whatever, Bodet. Right? Bodet, right? So Avram stopped off in the same motels. He didn't go to the Hilton. He didn't go to the Plaza. We said, you know, what happens when a person achieves wealth and success? Everything changes. If Tulna used to say in the Econo Lodge and Comfort Inn, and budget motel and red roof in and motel six now nothing's good enough for you now you go to the plaza trump tower i mean uh, you go already like a avram on his way back he's still going to the same hotels same motels before he you know he was poor now we know he's rich that means it tells us that he wasn't faced and he goes back to the same mizbeach he goes back to the same learning he still tries to bring people to learn Unchanged. That's the quality that he had. We find similarly, same thing with Sarah. She was a stark. She ruled over herself after going through all that she went through. Can you imagine the same Sarah that was barren is the same Sarah with child? Can you imagine that? Kulon Shabbat Latova. She was equally good. That means she was equally a tzadikus when she was barren as when she had a child. She was equally the tzadikus when she was poor as when she was rich. Equally the tzadikus when she's at home or when she's taken away by Paro and by Avimelech. Kulon Shavon unfazed, unchanged, equally the same. That's where the name Sarah comes from. She ruled over herself. If that's the case, we could now understand that medrash of Rabbi Akiva very simple. We started off by saying nobody gets this medrash. But now it makes perfect sense. Let's read the words from Rabbi Nisan Alford in the Limudei Nisan. Right below. Vayiyu Chayisari brings down the medrash. Rabbi Kiva was darshaning and said, why did Esther become a ruler on 127 provinces? Because she was a daughter of Sarah who lived 127 years. What does Sarah's life of 127 years mean that you now become ruler over 127 provinces. She lives, her longevity was 127 years. Territus, she was a Sora for 127 years. She was a princess. She was a queen for 127 years. She ruled over 127 years. Each one, Kulon, Shavin, Latova. Not one year did she not rule over. And there's a lot of changes there. 
for the 127 years was rich in life experiences. And Kulon Shavin Latova, the Torah emphasizes, Vayiyu Chaye Sora, 127 to the 120 and the 7 teaches us what her innocence was like, as we described earlier. At 100, like 20, like 7. But then the Pasuk begins and ends by saying, Shnei Chaye Sora. She was a Yiska throughout. She lived up to her name. Her name was Yiska. She lived up to that name. She ruled over, she was a Sora for that 127 years. That means that she lived all these experiences, each one different. She didn't give one up. Shnei Chaye Sora Kulon Shabbat Mutova. So now he says like this. V'nir levar. He brings down that the change to the name of Sarah, because earlier she was called Sarai. So he adds one extra point to what we've been saying. Her original name was Sarai. Hashem changes it to Sarah. Why? Like Avram's name. Avram, till now you were a limited father. Now you're the father of the world. Sarai means my princess. Till now you're a little limited princess. Now your name has changed to Sarah. Which means what? Queen of the world. So the name change of Sarai to Sarah already implies this ability to rule over the world. By the way, how do you rule over the world? First you got to control yourself. Rule over yourself, then you can control the world. She went from being Sarai to ruling over herself to being Sarah. Sarai usually means my princess. I'm just adding another little knesh to it. Sarai implies says, I'm my own princess. Well, that's how you start. You start off being a Sarai, my princess, my ruler. And from there you go, now you can rule over the world. Sarah. Fix yourself up. Then you'll fix up the world. First you fix up yourself. Then you can fix up the whole world. Sarai changes and converts to Sarah. Now she's a ruler. She's a Yiska. She ruled over herself, as Rashi says. Therefore, she now became sorrow for the world. So where do we see that she ruled over the world? So he says like this, take a look. Avimelech took her. She didn't even own her own plot of land for a gravesite. So take a look at her. She went through life a stranger, a sojourner in many lands. Paro took her, Avimelech took her, she didn't even own her own plot of land. Avram had to pay for it, full price. So how did she rule over the world? She didn't even have the six feet to get buried in. She didn't even have control over herself. Avimelech takes her, Paro takes her. That's called ruling over the world. The world's ruling over you. That's the cow she's asking. How can you call her, she changed her name from Sarai to Sarah, that she's ruling over the world. The world is ruling over her. Haro grabs her, Avimelech grabs her, Avram says over here, Ger V'soshov, what am I? I'm a Ger V'toshov. Tluli Achudas Kevra, I don't even have a family burial plot. She has nothing in the world, and the world controls her. Here it says, the world never controlled her inner core. Through all situations, all circumstances, all places, all locations, she never changed. That's the point. Not that she physically ruled over the world, but as much as the world attempted to rule over her, it never phased or never changed her. It's like a person who goes to a concentration camp, and he goes to the ghetto, and he goes to America, and in all places he's the same person. 
what's he going to say to the world rules over him? Forget it. He's ruling over the world. Because he doesn't change. No matter what happens to him, it's the same. I once told you a beautiful shot. It says, Rabbi Akiva, when he was taken out to be executed, so Chazal say, it was Zman Kriya Shema. So Rabbi Akiva said Shema. When they executed him, his Talmudim said, Ad Khan, thus far it goes. So I once told you shot to that. What does it mean, Ad Khan? What are they asking him? And what's he responding to them? And why does it say, Zman Kriyashma? It tells you that Rabbi Kiva wasn't, at the time, dealing with the big major issue of martyrdom. Now it's time for Shema. Oh, you mean they're going to execute me? It doesn't change. It's still the time for Shema. I'm going to say Shema. It was man Kriyashma. That's a person that, in the most extreme of circumstances, is in full control of everything. That's how far he went. It's interesting, Rabbi Kiva is the one that's saying over this, this medrash, how far self-control goes. If you could do that, then you're ruling the world because you've gone through everything that life could throw at you and it doesn't phase you. It doesn't change you. A person who's... What did we say once? A similar shot. I mean, I said from Rabbi Chayish it's a whole shot, but this part of it, you don't need Rabbi Chayish for it. It says, Shloima Melech was king over the world and then he became king over Eretz Yisrael only then only over Yerushalayim finally he was thrown out of his throne temporarily he became a ruler only over his staff and his cloak so he said that Chazal emphasized Molach he ruled he ruled over his staff and over his throne in other words by the end he had nothing left but he was still a king a king over that but with what we're saying now we can add another dimension to this idea not only did he maintain the trappings of royalty not only was he a king and had a regal bearing even though he only had a cloak and a, and a staff but that he was able to rule over this situation as well now there's one thing to be a king when you're truly a king but what happens when you're thrown out you're impeached are you able to handle it Yes, he handled it. Molach. He still ruled over the circumstances, over the situation of where he only had Makloi Vagunda. He was left with nothing but a staff and his, and his cloak. Nothing left. Are you going to be able to control or are you going to fall to pieces? You lost everything. You're bankrupt. Your house was taken over. Your car was taken over. Mortgage and lien. Everything was taken away from you. You used to be a king. You used to have everything. You used to be a king, and now, ois king, as they say in Yiddish, ois kapuchmacher. Right? You're ois kapuchmacher, which literally means you're no longer a hat maker, but no longer a king. All you're left with is one little cushion that says on it, "It's great to be king," but everything else is taken away from you. Your home, your clothes, your house, your car, your Rolls Royce, your all you're left is with the cushion. So you're king over the cushion. Are you still a king? Are you still a king even then? If you're still a king then, then you're truly a king and there's hope that you'll regain the throne. Because that means that you've ruled over every possible circumstance. Anything that life threw at you, you still have. You're still able to retain everything. So once already you could face even the situation where you're only left with a cushion. Doesn't mean he was still a king over the cushion. 
And according to Reb Chaim Shalevitz, it means he still maintained his regal bearing over the cushion, but it means that the circumstances of where you're only left with a cushion, you're still in control of the situation. You're still in control of the circumstances. You're still in control of your environment and over yourself. You're controlling yourself. You haven't fallen to pieces. When all you're left with is your staff, your your cloak, your cushion, you're still in control. If you're still a melech, even then, then you're truly a king. And you're king over the world. Because you've been thrown everything. If a person could be a king in a concentration camp, he's a king over the world. Right? If you could still be a king after going through what people went through, from wealth to the ghetto to the concentration camp, and you're still a king even then, then you're a king over the world because everything that was thrown at you, you're in control of. So that's what we're saying. Sarah, Kulon Shavin Latova. Say, Kash is, what do you mean she's, her name was changed from Sarai to Sarah. As I said earlier, if you're in control of Sarai, you become Sarah. But now we're just adding another dimension to it. She's not king over the world. But we said earlier that it's a kind of a meritorious thing. That if you merit being king over yourself, you'll eventually become king over the world. From Sarai, you deserve to be Sarah. But here we're saying, no, in actuality you're Sarah. Why? Because if you can control yourself Sarai, and every situation that comes at you, from being taken by Paro, to being taken by Avimelech, to not owning anything, to going from here to there, to being barren all these years, and then you have children, whatever it is, and you're unfazed and unchanged, that means you've learned to control yourself through every possible circumstance and situation that's thrown at you. So that means you rule over your entire world. You're ruling over the world, meaning that you're ruling over all of your environment. You're ruling over all circumstances, all challenges, all trials, tribulations, and tests. You're ruling over them all. So you're a Sarah. You're ruling over the world. The world of tests and the world of challenge, you're ruling over it. So you go from Sarai to Sarah. Let's continue with what he says here. So therefore, by her lack of changing, by a Sarah Bedaita, she remains Sarah in herself, and in the way that she behaved, she was not influenced she was not affected and influenced from the different countries from the different cultures the different civilizations she wasn't influenced by the people of these different places a person therefore who could go through life unaffected and uninfluenced by the world rules the world and as a result she wasn't influenced by the people the cultures the societies she wasn't influenced by the people of these societies and the same way she remained throughout the same Sarah as was queen in her own home the same Sarah wife of Avram living as the queen of Avram's home she was the same woman in Avimelech's palace in Paro's palace in Egypt everywhere she didn't lose her faith she didn't lose her trust her confidence she didn't lose her belief when she was barren or when she was a mother with child she remained and she retained throughout the same trust the same confidence throughout she was sorrow throughout Therefore, that's what it means. She had shrora. She had rulership over the world. The 
Namely, the world didn't control her. She wasn't controlled by circumstances. She controlled her environment. They didn't change her in a bit. She had the same faith and the same belief throughout. The world never changed her, never influenced her. She remained the same. That means she ruled over that. The truth is, if we look at Esther, we see a, a, an interesting similarity. Esther, likewise, although her life situation and circumstances radically changed, she did not. She remained unchanged and unfazed. She was taken She was taken from the house of Mordechai, just like Sarah was taken from the house of Avram. She was taken from the house of Mordechai to the palace of Achashverosh. Hamatzir Nishtan Radical change. But Esther remained Esther. Just like she was in the house of Mordechai. Nothing changed. She remained the same Esther. And the Megillah emphasizes this. Just like as she was raised in the house of Mordechai, she remained unchanged. The Megillah emphasizes that. She remained with the same Ruach HaKodesh. She was given opportunities to take and enhance her beauty. She didn't care for that. Again, she had that childlike innocence of beauty. She didn't change. As a result, she merited ruling over 127 provinces. She could rule over the world. In other words, the world didn't rule over her. She was taken to the palace of the king. Most people think that when you become king, you're now ruler over the world. Not exactly. You're a changed person. Your job rules over you. You are a changed man. The circumstances of your change of being so wealthy and powerful have affected you that you no longer are the same objective person that you were before that. You are now ruled by your circumstances and ruled by the world. If Esther, in her new situation, was the same Esther, then she truly is ruling over the world and the world isn't ruling over her. Sorry, Menu. The same way that Esther, didn't rule over her, Sari Menu is the one that showed the path. She's the one that showed Esther the path. She brought out this idea of strength and power, the ability to rule, to not be a victim of circumstances, but to be a queen and a king of your circumstances. That you shouldn't be impressed and impacted upon. Not to change because your circumstances change. You don't allow circumstances to change you. Just because they change doesn't mean that you change. Don't be impressed. Don't be impressed by a change of circumstances. Or the immortal words of Jonathan Kanovich. Philosophy of life. Easy to please, hard to impress, impossible to insult. He told me that the other day. I liked it very much. I'm, I'm easy to please, hard to impress, impossible to insult. But the idea of not letting yourself get impressed by change of circumstances, don't let that change you. Esther was shown the way by Sora not to be changed by circumstances. Uli Shoyer Bemunosa. Not to be affected by change of circumstances and to remain in the same strength of faith. Be'isana, with the same strength. Like at first. So therefore, 
to retain that same strength of character and that same ability to remain and carry with you these these beliefs, that firmness of faith. This really is the combined and collective soul of the Jewish people to do this. And Esther utilized and tapped into this power to become queen of the world and not to be influenced by the world and not to be impressed by the world. Therefore says Rabbi Akiva, wake up! You guys, you're falling asleep. Wake up! And it's interesting the way he phrases it. What did Esther see? Esther. He doesn't say, What did Esther merit? Or how did Esther become queen of 127 provinces because of Sarah? He says, Esther. What did Esther see to become queen of 127 provinces? She saw Sarah. She saw how Sarah ruled over 127 complete years. And if Sarah could rule over a life that she went through, then I could rule over my change, and I could rule over my circumstances, and then yes, ultimately she became queen as well. It's a beautiful connection. The connection is perfect now. It wasn't just an accident of numbers. 127, 127 again. Chazal don't just say, Harry, things, you know, callously and, and just haphazardly. There's, there's deep meaning and, and the connection is now beautiful. What did Esther see to become queen and to not be influenced in the palace of the king and not to be influenced by 127 provinces? She saw how Sarah was able to go through 127 years of life. And each of those years not only was full and rich, which is what we've been saying at other times, but according to this, unfazed and unchanged and unchallenged. And she goes from 7 to 20 to 100, and she's not a victim of circumstances and changes, but she rules over each change. So if she could rule over the 127 years of experiences that she went through, that means she lived a life of 127 years of a multitude of, ex of experiences and she ruled over all those circumstances and all those experiences if she could be the queen of, a, of her 127 years I could be the queen of my circumstances and not be influenced by the societal influences of 127 provinces but I'll rule over them Ultimately, she did rule over them. That's how she became queen. This is the quality of Sarah of Yiska. And as we define the name, Yiska, everyone's looking at her. She's looking at Ruach HaKodesh. She's a Yiska. She's a ruler. That's what Sarah means. Asar, Shrara. Shrara in Hebrew translates as rulership. She was Shrara. She was Shorer. Leo's called Ish Shorer Beveso. Each man should rule in his home. Shorer means to rule. She was a Shorer. She ruled. And she went from Sarai to Sarah. From being her princess to being queen of the world. We explain that as well. She went from first you rule over yourself, then you could rule over everybody else. But it also means that she was at first strong and therefore the world of experience of all of the whole world experience didn't affect her. That's the true queen of the world. Okay. The second shot that we'll say now overlaps to an extent the first. In fact, really should really perceive the first in a way. Rick Schwab points out the same idea. But based on the Medrash that Rashi was really based on. The Medrash that Rashi is based on 
comes from the following. Yodeya Hashem Yimei Tmimim V'nachalosam Lo'olam Tia Tzadikim Righteous ones Kishem Shehem Tmimim Kach Shenoisam Tmimim Not for right. Righteous people just as they are perfect and whole likewise their lives are likewise perfect and whole. That's why Tzadikim are called Tmimim Yodeya Hashem Yimei Tmimim Hashem knows the days of the perfect ones, of the wholesome ones, of the people that are whole and pure. Tzadikim are Tmimim, and their days and their years and their lives are also Tmimim. What does the Medrash mean that says that just as Tzadikim are righteous and whole and perfect, likewise their lives and their years are also righteous, whole, perfect and pure. What is the connection between their person and their years? So he explains a very important concept. Dear Devreim, Shabemis, Mishahoyu Yemei Chayov, Shivim Shona. If a person lives 70 years, but he spends out of the 70 years, how much is he really living? Well, if we talk about the years that when you're, when you're a baby and a child and you're not in control, so you deduct a few of those years. You talk about those days when a person is sick, take off a couple of years of that. If you sleep a third of your life, so you got to take off a third of that. You talk about brushing your teeth and showering and doing your other physical needs when nature calls. Take off a few years for that. How many years are really left? And think about it. You know, you take a hundred years, 33 and a third are spent sleeping. You waste at least a half on the other bodily needs. So, even if you live a hundred years, you really only lived... 50. Now, if you waste that and you're in a drunken stupor or something like that, you're really left with a very, very short life. Very short life. So therefore, when you talk about a person that ruins and wastes his years and his times, so he lives a short life. Think how much people waste. You waste your time traveling. I mean, there's no greater waste of time than commuting to your work. Right? When you're on the train, nowadays, of course, we have tapes, we have books. But imagine before you had CD-ROMs and before you had tapes and cassettes in, in cars. I mean, it was the most atrocious waste of time. Imagine all those years that people spend wasting their time sitting at ball games or reading about sports or as Andy Neff said, reading the New York Times, how many hours is spent on that. But besides that, how much time is spent commuting, how much time is spent eating and drinking, sleeping, certainly doing things that are not for the sake of heaven. We once made a calculation how little of our time we actually truly spend in the service of God. 95% of our time is really spent for ourselves. Very, we once, we once worked out a calculation, I don't want to go into it, it'll take too long to work it out. But so little of our time, you know, we, we talked, and I'm talking about guys like Eddie, who come for it every single day. We, we calculated how many days of the year does it actually work out to be. Let's take you guys to come weekly. It doesn't work out to 52 weeks a year. It works out to something closer to like 40, 41. Out of that, how much of it is learning and wasting time, eating and drinking? An hour and a half? 50 hours, 60 hours a year? With this wonderful coming to class, all you guys are doing is spending 70, 80 hours a year. 
It's not even a week's worth. It's not even a week's worth of learning. Now, if you double that and go to two classes, you'd be spending two weeks out of a year. Now, if you figure out how many years of this law of your life are going to be doing that, and you figure out how much you're actually learning, how much are you davening in shul, how much are you davening, thinking of davening, not thinking of something else. So you only have really Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, maybe. Part of that. How many hours? Collect all the hours of your life spent in devotion to Hashem, and you're talking about counting up hours. Now, if you live tens and tens of thousands of hours, you're walking away with the cheshman of days. That's all you've given God. Only a few days, a few weeks, a few months of your life. It's incredible. Now I will teach you the key to being able to have the whole life. I'll teach you the key how you can get from going from a few hours to having everything. Now you understand the key to why that Pasuk is a very crucial one. Yodeya Hashem Yemei Tmimim Hashem knows the days of Tmimim where Chazal tell us a beautiful thing, a key and the key is that not only are they Tmimim but they're able to make their whole days whole perfect, complete how do you do that? how do you do that? Nimtza He's being very generous with Shalom. That a person, after you take off the time that you wasted, you're left with 20 or 30 years that you've truly lived. I think it's a little bit generous. But okay, let's assume that a person lives a rich life of 90 years and he spends so much time doing things for Hashem. And out of all of that, you can actually say that he spent 20 or 30 years doing something. Doing something of achievement and accomplishment. Good. Let's be generous. Comes out. That's all he has from, from all of, the, of where he lived. Avol Tzadikim. Zahar Tzadikim get more. I mean, good. So Tzadikim work harder. But they were also babies at one time. They also have to sometimes work for a living. They also have to commute. They certainly have to sleep. They have to eat. They have to drink. They have to go to the bathroom as well. They brush their teeth. They have to shower. They eat, might even need rest and recreation and go on vacation. So, how much more do they have than the rest of us? If the rest of us have 20 or 30 years of a 90-year life, so what does Tzadikim have? Double the amount? At most. So they have 50, 60 years. But you still got to take off 40 years of sleeping and being... You got to take off the rest. How do they approach Tmimim, perfection, completeness, wholesomeness? Very simple. Very simple. Heritages. If you do everything for a purpose, for a goal, the shame shamayim, hare nimsu yimayim tamimim, you get credit for all of it. Shekol rega mechayim hoyim mukudish lekim tzadashamakim, because every moment was consecrated and donated for a purpose. For example, if you're on a business trip, they pay you for the commuting time as well. Right? I mean, I'm commuting. I'm not there yet. But I got to get there. I'm doing it for you. I'm traveling. You got to pay my traveling expenses, my hotel, my lodging, my sleeping, my eating. I mean, I'm a human being. I got to get from point A to point B. And I'm working for you. So I use your charge card. I put it on your charge account where I sleep, the hotel, the car rental, the plane trip, the airport, the fares, the meals, even the golf game, possibly. Certainly the office 
space and the music that's being piped in, right? Because you need a radio there and you need a couch and you need a chair. All of this comes off free off the business expense. And if I'm commuting to it, commute time I'm also doing for you. If you change your perspective and you realize that you're working for God, then your sleeping time also counts. And your eating time is also off of His expense. Because you're eating for Him. Therefore, call Rega Hoyam the Kudish. It's all consecrated to Hashem. That's what the Medrash then says. The Medrash is seeing this possible. The life, the life that Sarah lived was 127 years. And it emphasizes it again. She lived that long. That's how long she lived. And that's how Rashi says, Kulon Shavin Latova. It's all equally counted. It's all equally counted. The Liyaitzim in Aklau. She had all of her years. She had every single year. Why? It's like we said earlier. Her whole life was devoted to ruling over the days. So she ruled over 127 years. Most of us only rule over a few days of our lives. Or a few months. Or a few years. She rules over 127 years. In other words, she did live that long. The parsha is aptly and appropriately titled Chaye Sarah, the life of Sarah. Because we're not talking here about the death of Sarah, but about her life. She lived 127 years. That's a remarkable thing. She had 127 years of life. But how does one get that? When you have so much is given up. If your perspective is her perspective, then you're given the credit of all of those years. So the Torah emphasizes it twice. Let's learn the Rambam in Hilchus Deos that exemplifies this idea. Says the Rambam in Hilchus Deos, the bottom of this page. A person should think and aim his heart and focus and concentrate to know God. And therefore be a His entire focus should be to, to this goal, geared to this goal. Ketzad, in other words, how is this done? When you are dealing in business, or you're working, don't focus only, merely, on making money for yourself. Your purpose should be, I got to make a living in order to live. My body needs things, so I got to work in order to live. The Tosik says in Mishlei, a tzaddik eats to satiate his life. And therefore you're doing it. Why are you working? You're working because you need food, bread on the table. The yeshiva's bias. I need a home, I need a house, I need roof and shelter. The CS Isha. I have to get married and raise a family and support a family, support a wife. And we all know that's expensive. So that's why I'm working. That's what your mind should be focused at. Not to amass wealth and to amass money, but to amass the necessities to live. And then when you eat and drink, when a person eats and drinks, do not only think for the mere purpose of only giving yourself physical pleasure, sensual pleasure, 
Because then you're only going to eat that which is sweet and pleasant, not that which is healthy. The evil You're going to have relations with your wife only for pleasure, not for children. You're eating and drinking to promote health. Therefore, you're not going to eat and drink. Here, I'm going to like go through a little bit quickly. You're not going to eat and drink that which is merely sweet and pleasurable. But you're going to eat and drink things that are good, wholesome, and healthy for your body, for your health. And you're not going to, and you're going to avoid the things that are unhealthy. And he goes into the details of how this is done. And then he says, and we're going to skip all this. Like now, let's go to Gimel. Hamanhig atzmo al He who lives this kind of life, im soma libo. If he places his focus, so he says, if you do this, that you're only doing it. I'm sorry, your intention is only for yourself. That's that's not the right way. It's not necessarily a bad way. In other words, if a person thinks in terms of living life and being healthy, like you have these, you know, health nuts out there, and their whole life is geared to living and being healthy. That's not the right way. It's not a good way. It's not condemned, but it's not the right thing. But rather, you have to think beyond that. Yes, you want to live and be healthy. Why? You want to be healthy, strong. Why? In order that your mind should be clear. That your mind should be focused. That your mind should be straight. That your soul should be able to seek out that which it yearns for to know God. Because you can't become wise and you can't become spiritual if if you're hungry, if you're sick, if you're famished, if you're if you're in pain, if you're suffering, if you're in agony. Therefore you want to be healthy. Therefore you want to be strong. Therefore you want to be happy. So you're focused on your health and your happiness because I want to do more with my life. Then and you want to have children that you could raise in the right path. So says the Rambam, and we'll continue reading five lines from the bottom. Now we're four lines from the bottom. A person that does this, that's considered that you're serving God with every moment of every day. If that's the way you think, then everything you're doing is for God's service. Everything. Even when you're doing business, even when you're working. Why? Because your machshava and everything is to do that which is good, that you'll be healthy, happy, rested, relaxed, and to do that which you want to do, which is the better things in life, to serve Hashem. Even when you're sleeping, he says, even while you're sleeping, if you're sleeping in order that you should be able to rest and refresh yourself, and that you should be healthy, so you're doing it for rest, composure, relaxation, health, and being able to refresh yourself, then, because you don't want to get sick, and you can't serve Hashem when you are, Nimsas, it'll come out, even your sleep is service to God. Even sleeping is service. Therefore, Chachom said, which would normally be understood to mean do everything for the sake of heaven he interprets it to mean everything that you're doing think for the sake of heaven but don't only do the things that are for the sake of heaven which means do this because it's impossible see he's saying Chazal says all your deeds should be for the sake of heaven that's an impossibility you can't spend your whole life 
only doing heavenly deeds. You're forced into earthly deeds. So therefore Chazal couldn't have meant only do heavenly deeds. All your deeds for heaven. And that would mean, oh, I got to do this mitzvah and that mitzvah and learn Torah and do this and that. It's impossible. I still can't have all my deeds for the sake of heaven because I'm human. In fact, 70% of my day is going to be involved in myself. I'm going to be eating, sleeping, doing other things. Traveling, commuting. So what do you mean I'm going to do everything for the sake of heaven? Only a minority of my deeds can be for the sake of heaven. The majority will be for myself. Heretic says the Rambam, Kol Masecha. No, for Kol Masecha. All that you do should be Yil Hashem Shemaim. That's all. Change of perspective. I mean, it will affect what you're doing, obviously. It will obviously have an impact and an effect on what you're doing. But to me, it's mainly a change of perspective. That Kol Masecha. Everything that you're doing, the eating, sleeping, drinking, all that you're doing shouldn't be earthly. It should be heavenly. It doesn't mean that you're doing heavenly deeds, but that the deeds that you do should become heavenly deeds. How do they become heavenly deeds? When you focus on heavenly thoughts. If you do that, then all your deeds become the Shem Shemaim. He says that's the interpretation of the Pasuk in Mishlei. The Know God in all of your ways. And you straighten out your path. What does it mean, know God? in all of your ways how can you know God in everything normally it would mean that everything that I do should be to know God but again that's impossible to know God and to spend all all of your ways all of your ways all your byways should be just for the sake of God to know God it's impossible in all the ways that you are going focus it gear it on Him if you do that God will straighten out your path you'll do things right and furthermore, everything that you're doing will count. Yodeya Hashem Yimei Tmimim. Hashem says, just like they are righteous, in other words, the same way their mind is focused to be whole and perfect, their days are complete. Their days are whole. Their days are perfected. Not only qualitatively, but even quantitatively. Tmimim. Tmimim means whole, complete. It means their entire lives, not only qualitatively, but even quantitatively, are Tmimim. Whole wholesome and perfect. She lived 127 years She lived it. How? Very simple. If her mind was focused on Yiska, not on beauty, but on Yiska to look for Ruach HaKodesh and she ruled over herself, then everything else that she did also counts. Everything else that she did is Tmimim. Yodei Hashem Yimei Tmimim. Kishem Shehem Tmimim. If they're Tmimim, their time is also whole. So the point of the Pasuk, or the statement of Chazal, is it gives you an opportunity to be able to not only perfect yourself and think be a tzaddik, but it tells you that there's two aspects to yourself. There is you and there's your time. But you should know this key and the secret. Namely, that if you are good, then all of your time will count. Not only you'll be a perfect person, but God counts all of your time as perfect. You could actually utilize all of your time. So on your monument, they won't merely say you spent 20 years of your life, but all 127. I'm perfect. All my years were perfect. 127 years of perfection. It's a lot. It's a quantitative perfection as well. These are the two lessons that we have from Parshas Chayi Sora just in the very first Pasuk about what it means to be in control of yourself and what it means to utilize time and how you could reconvert and transform wasted time to valuable time.
This is likewise the meaning of Chazal, that tzadikim afilu b'misosam kruim chayim, rishoyim afilu b'chayeim kruim mesim. Tzadikim, even when they're no longer alive, when they're no longer with us, but the years were rich and eternal. Chaye Sarah. She's called Chaye Sarah. We're not talking about her death, but her life. Her life and her legacy lives on. It lives on in Esther. Maro Esther. What did Esther see? What Esther saw to become a queen, to become a ruler, well, she saw the life of our matriarch Sarah. And by viewing and learning the lessons and deriving the proper lessons from the life of Sarah, Esther became queen of 127 provinces. Sarah lived a rich life, and her life was lived, and it lives on eternally. It's still Chaye Sarah. It's still Chaye Sarah because she's still alive, because her life was rich and eternal, and she left us with a legacy. Therefore, Tzadikim, Afilu b'misosam kurim chayim, they're still called alive. Even when they're dead, we still refer to them as Chaye Sarah. Rishoyim, on the other hand, even when they're alive, their lives are wasted. As we pointed out, how much life do they really have? And if you waste your life, you have no life at all. Rishoyim that are destructive in their lives. Afilu b'chayeim, kruyim mesim, they're not called alive. Vilna Gaon says a very interesting word over here in the Sefer Kol Eliyahu. He says the Pasuk says, V'ekvara es meisim milfonoi, Avram Avinu asked the Bnei Ches, let me bury my dead. He says we find that when uh, Avram made these requests to the Bnei Ches for, for a kever, and they respond by saying, yes, you can have it, we find the expression of burial of the dead mentioned seven times in this short, brief episode. Nimtza haloshen sheva pomen. As we find the ekvoras mesim mulfonoi, that's one time. Then they responded to him by saying, Kvores mesecho, bury your dead. Mikvor mesecho, no one will prevent anybody from burying your dead. Likvor es mesi, Avram responds that I want to bury my dead. Kvor mesecho, they respond again to him. He responds again to them, for ekvoras mesi. And then they finally say, by the end, ves mescho kvor, and you're dead, you will bury. He says, Why do we find it necessary in the, to, to have it so repetitive? Each time, Avram says to them, Okay, if you will let me bury my dead, then do this and this. And they say, Okay, if you want to bury your dead, we'll give it to you. And Avram says, Okay, if I want to bury my dead, let me pay, or whatever it is. Why is it mentioned a total of seven times? It says, And it says about the burial of the dead over here. Furthermore, questions the Goyen that how come in the six first times we find it, it says the word Kvura before the word Misa. It says Kvor Meisecha, Voekvor Esmeisi, or Mikvor Meisecha, Likvor Esmeisi, Kvor Meisecha, Voekvor Esmeisi. All these places it says it six times, it says the word Kvura, burial, before the word Meis, death. On the last time, the seventh time, it says Meischa Kvor. You're dead, you shall bury. It says the word Misa, and then the word Kvora, death before burial. In the other places it has burial before death, but the seventh time it has death before burial. So he says an interesting pshat. He says we know that when Avram wanted to bury Sarah in Moras Machpelah, Adam and Chava were already buried there. And we knew, and Avram knew that there were going to be tzaddikim that were to be buried there, and he wanted them for himself. There was still 
space for six more uh, for six more bodies in other words for three couples which was of course Avram, Sarah Yitzchak and Rivka Yaakov and Leah total of six more therefore the Pusik says six times and that's the remez in the Pusik where it says six times Likvor es Macy to bury the dead because there's going to be a total of six more to be buried now since we're dealing with six tzaddikim Keneged Shisha Tzadikim Hamasidim Lanuach Shem the six Tzadikim Avram Sarah Yitzchak Rivka Yaakov and Le that were going to be buried there. We also know furthermore that Chazal tell us the Gemara Saita that when when they wanted to bury Yaakov Avinu the Mars Hamachpela Esav came and he contested the will he contested the burial he said it, it's uh, he's entitled to have it and that Yaakov shouldn't be buried there. Esav wanted the final burial plot. In other words, Sarah was buried there first, followed by Avram, then there was Yitzhak and Rivka, then there was Leah, and then there was one last spot open for Yaakov, and Esau contested that. So a fight ensued, and what happened was that Chushim ben Don took a sword and chopped off Esau's head, and the head of Esau rolled into the Mora Samach and was buried there. The head of Esav rolled into the Mar Samachpela and was buried there. Furthermore, we know what Chazal say, that wicked people, even while they're alive, they're called dead. Whereas Sadiqim, even when they're dead, they're still called alive. But the Gemara in Shabbos says, how could we say that Sadiqim are perpetually alive and they do not suffer death? And even by Misosim, they're called alive. We have a pasuk that says that there's a curse given, ki offer atovel offer toshuv, namely that everybody, no exception, at one point is going to be, is going to die and revert back to a state of dust. So therefore, if it says ki offer atovel offer toshuv, that everyone, no exception, is going to go back to a state of dust, how could you then say by Misosim kruim chaim that they're perpetually alive? So more answers. That Mishani that a moment before Tchiyas Hamesim, an hour before Tchiyas Hamesim, they will suffer the curse of reversion to dust. In other words, they will suffer this concept of death. So that means till that point they're still alive, but since they have to go through the curse of Elofor Toshuv, and they have to go through that process before they can have Tchiyas Hamesim, so the last possible moment, an hour before Tchiyas Hamesim, that's when they will suffer this concept of death of the offer to Shuv and that's when they'll die says the Gain comes out that we see from the Pusik, from the Gemara rather that by Tzadikim they're buried before they actually die by Tzadikim we find Kvura and then Misa namely they're buried and an hour before Tchiyas HaMesim that's when they have Misa therefore it comes out very good there are six more people to be buried in the Mora Samach and those six people are going to be righteous, the tzaddikim. And therefore, it says the word kvura before Misa, because that's what it is with tzaddikim. First there's kvura, then there's Misa. So therefore it says, corresponding to the six tzaddikim, that are going to have kvura before they have Misa. But the last one, the very last burial in Mara Samach corresponds to number 7 which is Esau Esau's head in other words and there it says Meischa Kvor 
the dead you shall bury. That's a remiss to Esau that although he merited to have his head buried in the Morris of Machpelah, but he died before the burial. And certainly the Eitzel Rishoyim Misosim Kaidemis Lukvurosim. By Rishoyim their death precedes their, their burial because even B'chayeyem Kruyim Mesim, therefore it says over there, Misa before Kvurah.